Welcome to Grace Church Resources. This is the home of the teaching ministry of Grace Community Evangelical Free Church in Spofford, New Hampshire. Here you will find weekly sermons, special teaching series, testimonies, and much more. If you haven't already subscribed, we encourage you to do so so you will be notified when we post new material. We trust these resources will be a supplement to your regular involvement in a local church wherever you may be, and that by His grace and for His glory, you are looking more like Jesus every day. Good morning. Someone in the foyer told me that's not a picture of someone at work. It's a picture of someone opening an umbrella. So there you go. Um, If you could be turning, if you're not there already, to Genesis 37. Let me tell you about a guy named Roger and a woman named Elaine. Roger's attracted to Elaine, so he asks her out to a movie. She accepts. They had a pretty good time. A few nights later, he asks her out for dinner. And again, they enjoy themselves. They continue to see each other regularly. And then on one evening, they're driving home, and it occurs to Elaine, without really thinking, she says, Do you realize, as of tonight, we've been seeing each other exactly six months? And there's a silence in the car. To Elaine, it seems like a very loud science silence. She thinks to herself, hmm, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's been feeling confined by our relationship. Maybe he thinks I'm trying to push him into some kind of obligation that he doesn't want or isn't sure of. And Roger's thinking, wow, six months. And Elaine is thinking, but hey, I'm not sure I want this kind of relationship either. Sometimes I wish I had a little bit more space. I'd like to have time to think about whether I really want to keep up with this. Moving steadily towards, I mean, where are we going? Are we going to keep seeing each other at this level of intimacy? I mean, are we heading towards marriage, towards children, towards a lifetime together? Am I ready for that level of commitment? Do I really know this person? And Roger was thinking, that means February. Oh, I had my car in the dealer for an oil change. (laughs) Oh, look at the odometer. I need another oil change. And Elena's thinking, oh, he's upset. I can see it on his face. Maybe I'm reading this completely wrong. He's afraid of being rejected. And Roger's thinking, hmm, I need to have the transmission checked. By the way, Roger and Elaine did not sit in my office, although similar stories have. Um, While the male stereotype, male-female stereotype here is sometimes reversed, it sets us up well. Elaine was totally missing Roger, and Roger was totally missing Elaine. And they didn't even know it. Oftentimes, they go into marriage, and without coaching, it gets worse. But the question this morning is not on the horizontal. The question is on the vertical. Uh, we mis- misunderstanding our God at times. Of course we are. More than we know. For me, as a new believer, 40 years ago, I had a hard time understanding how could this God give me time 
My father, who had only seven kids, couldn't give me time. How could a God who has millions possibly have time for me? By the grace of God, I got past that in the past 10 years. And still at times now, seeing God in the mundane of everyday life. Here's one way we misunderstand God. D.A. Carson put it like this to his daughter when she was angry at God because her best friend had died. Honey, you have a choice. You, continue, you can continue to see God as like a genie in the bottle who gives you what you want when you want it, but is no God at all. Or you're going to trust the one true God who knows what he's doing, but he often does not show you what he's doing in your life. Your choice. Many people come into the Christian life with these kind of beliefs. And they continue in that in their journey. They continue to walk in a misunderstanding of who this God is. No doubt the people of our story of Genesis 37 were missing each other and missing God. But that did not stop God from doing his work. This morning we're going to see God at work in a sinful family. God at work in the details of the sinful family and our lives. And a God at work in all his people. So first, God at work in the sinful family. Our text today is the amazing story of Joseph and Jacob, right? Otherwise known as Israel and Jacob's sons, who mostly become the 12 tribes of Israel. As you've read, as you heard in the story, this is one messed up family. About as screwed up as a family you can get. And yet this is the, na- the, tr- the family that the nation comes from. The family through whom the Messiah comes. Tim Keller likens this family to Mount St. Helens. And if you look at Mount St. Helens, right, that is solid as they come. That is not changing. Right? It's never going to change. You're going to come back in a thousand years, and it's going to look just like that. But you all know how the story goes. Something happened, right? It had an eruption. The top came off. And folks, the top came off this family. Reality TV producers would love it. Right? First, we have Jacob, Israel, who favored the son, Joseph. This is toxic. This is poisonous for a parent to favor one child over another. And we see the results of how much damage it did to this family. Next, we have Joseph. At this point, a spoiled, arrogant, lying teen. In verse 2, when he gave a bad report to his father, another, tra- another translation for this is he gave a false report. On top of that, he has the dream, and he tells the brothers the dream, and the brothers like, who are you? You're the younger son. And in that culture, never does the younger son rule over the older sons. And then he has a second dream. And he tells them that dream too. So not only is he arrogant, he doesn't have any perception of how people receive him. And then even in verse 10, even Jacob rebukes Joseph. And lastly, we have the brothers, the hateful, murderous, jealous brothers whose sin is over the top. Yes, some less than others. There are no good guys here. 
right? And yet this is the family that God is going to use to build his nation through whom he will bring redemption to planet Earth. Why does God use such a toxic family? Because God uses weak, broken people. We often use people like Jacob and Judah and Joseph as heroes of of the faith, and rightfully so. But be careful. They were humans. Weak, broken, sinful humans. And at times walked by faith. Some more than others. And this is the difference between Christianity and the traditional religions of our world. Traditional religions have a set of rules. And then they give you examples of those rules. And if you follow those examples, you'll be blessed. And if you don't follow and follow the rules, you won't be blessed. But that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity, right? There's no one righteous in this story. Just broken, prideful, hatred people. And at the end of Genesis 37, the top has blown off. But God is at working, at work, even in this sinful people. Let's see how God is at work in the details of this broken family. Ever wonder why the story of of Jacob, Joseph, and stories like it, um, we don't have more details? Hebrews 11 talks about their faith at the end of their life, at their death. Right? Why not inner workings of how they came to faith? Or what do they struggle with in their faith? The reason is, the story is not about them. These stories are written to show us an amazing God. Take Hero David, Hero David, right? David and Goliath. And we, we've heard the story. And what do we often take from it? What an amazing man of faith David was. And he was. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this young teen took on this giant. Why? Because God was with him. And he can use you to take on giants as well. It doesn't so much depend on you. It depends on God. If you ever have people or teachers teaching or even implying there's something special about them and God is not the center of their teaching, Run. Joseph's story here is to show us that God is rescuing a wayward people, a sinful people, and God's grace breaks into life. He is even in the everyday mundane, seemingly insignificant details of life. Listen to the details of what God is orchestrating in Genesis 37, as was read. There's a famine coming, as we learn later in in Genesis. And everyone in this story dies if Joseph is not sold as a slave. Somehow God uses a poisonous dad, an arrogant son, and wicked, jealous brothers and slave traders to bring about the rescue of this family. Sinful Jacob favors Joseph and poisons the whole family. And as a result, the brothers of Jealous are jealous. No jealous brothers, no family to Egypt. God gives Joseph these dreams that show what's coming. No dreams, no jealous brothers, no Egypt. Joseph, in his arrogance, tells the brothers of his dreams. Jacob sends Joseph to check on brothers just when they're most angry. 
just happens. Some stranger just happens to hear the brothers are going to Dotham. And Joseph just happens to run into this guy. Joseph just happens to find his brothers at the right time. And the slave traders just happen to be coming by when they're trying to decide what to do with Joseph. This next detail is, is actually more significant. Genesis 37 to the end of Genesis is part of the book of redemption. Redemption starts in Genesis chapter 12. We have the story of redemption beginning, going all the way up to Revelation. What's Genesis 1 to 11 about? Right? Genesis 11 is about the creation of the world. God creates the world and puts people in it so that they will glorify him. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what do we have at the end of Genesis 11? Right? We had the flood. We have the Tower of Babel. Do we have many people worshiping God? No. So what does God do? What would you do? God saves one man. Right? Promises to make him a great nation. And here we are in Genesis 37. 190 years later. God's timing is not our timing. And what do you have? The top is blown off the family. But God is clearly at work. How do we know? Because we know the end of the story in Genesis. If the 70 do not go down to Egypt, we don't get a nation. We don't get a leader. And then we don't have the Messiah. And we would not be sitting here today. God is at work in the details, folks. In the details of your life. How do you know? Because the scriptures promise it. Let's look at God at work in his people. A third point. One of the most reasonable questions I face in widespread throughout our culture, asked years ago by my eight-year-old child, Dad, if God is good and sovereign, then how can there be evil in the world? Not an easy question for a dad to answer, for an eight-year-old, for anyone for that matter. For the sincere thinker today, one conclusion is he must be incompetent. Certainly not sovereign. No good person would let this happen, right? You wouldn't let this happen. How could God be good and competent given the level of sin and suffering we have on earth? And we all know it's easy for us in the Western culture to not appreciate how deep and dark this world can get. The problem of evil is not just an issue of someone coming to faith. It plagues many of believers. It is a tough question. And it is the hardest question in all of theology. So I have two helps. There's more. But I have two helps this morning. One, Christ. And two, back to our text. When a believer faces this difficult question of the problem of evil, one sure way to reassure them in their faith is to go to Christ. Yes, we have evil in this creation. And yet God, and yes, God created this creation. But the same God sends his son to die, to take on sin and suffering. Why? Because he hates sin and suffering. Yes, it's a paradox. It's a mystery. 
but he really is good and sovereign. Okay, let's look at this sovereign piece. As you spend time in the scriptures, looking at the stories, looking at the hand of God, these pictures of people and the teachings of scripture, the sovereignty of God becomes clearer and clearer. And those of us who have the gray hairs, we're looking back, we see it time and time again. Believe us, believe the scriptures. But our passage today and the rest of Genesis is one of the best places in all of scripture to see the sovereignty of God. As we walk through the story of Joseph and the sovereign hand was unmistakable. And it continues in the story if we had time to read the whole book of Genesis. <clears throat> After Joseph is sold into slavery, into Potiphar's house, those of you who know the, know the story, he becomes part of his most favored servant. Potiphar, Potiphar trusts him with everything in his home. But Potiphar's wife makes a false accusation. David, does, uh, Joseph does nothing wrong, and yet he's in prison. Again, injustice done to Joseph. And year after year, in prison, for nothing he's done wrong. Then he finally gets a break. If you know the story, the cupbearer and the baker just happen to have dreams, and Joseph just happens to be able to interpret the dreams. And Joseph has a break. Right? Tell Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh what I did. But not for two more years in prison. Year after year, away from the family. How painfully difficult. Whether Joseph is aware of not at this point, God is at work in Joseph. Thirteen years between being sold in slavery before he becomes the second most powerful man on planet Earth. I suggest to you, if the timing was anything different than the thirteen years, Perhaps Joseph wasn't ready. Perhaps the brothers weren't ready. Perhaps Jacob wasn't ready. Perhaps Egypt wasn't ready for him. God's timing is perfect. We don't know. That's not the purpose. The purpose of the story is to show God is at work so that we can trust him too. So what about evil? Again, God uses it. God never causes it. And it remains partly a mystery. It's enough for the believer to know that God is good and that he is sovereign and trustworthy. Let's jump to the New Testament. We'll be turning to Hebrews 12. We're going to look at a couple verses that bring this home. As you're turning to Hebrews 12, I'm going to read Romans 8.28. Most of you know it by heart. I know it in the NIV, but I'll read it in the ESV. And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What a powerful promise. How could this be? But it is. God promises to use all the details of your life, every circumstance, even the evil, for your good and his purposes. What an amazing promise. Now, the <clears throat> Hebrews 12 if, you, if you're there, <clears throat> this is one of the best places to complement what's going on in Genesis. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now remember, 
Sons here means believers, all believers. In the first century, a daughter had no inheritance. So when it says sons, it's talking about those who have the inheritance, all Christians. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Discipline here could mean training, right? An athlete undergoes discipline or training to become better. And God trains those he loves. Nor be weary when he reproves you, right? Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline, verse 7, training, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Promise here, folks. For what son is there for whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, hardship is a sign that you are loved. That is so contrary to the way our culture thinks. Besides this, we all have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Some of us did. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good. And now he defines what that good is. That you may share in his holiness. For our good, that you may share in his holiness. What is God training us for? The runner trains so that he gets faster. Right? The jumper trains that he gets higher. What is the runner of the Christian life being trained for? For our good, that we may share in his holiness. Can you summarize what this holiness is? Be more like Jesus? Or, right, all the commands of Scripture summarized in, love God. Love others. God is bringing trials in our lives so that we can love him more deeply and love others. Is it going to take you 13 hours like Joseph? Maybe. Doesn't mean his love's not with you when you're having those trials. The runner gets faster. The jumper gets higher. The believer grows in his love for God and others. Turn back to Hebrews 5. A really important point here. This training, this discipline, takes discernment. Right? We have an enemy within. And those of us who've been around realize our hearts have an enemy within. We have Christ within, but learning to distinguish takes maturity. That's why Hebrews 14, 5.14 says, but solid, and in Hebrews, is talking to the immature, the immature Hebrews, who are not getting it, challenging them towards maturity. Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It takes time. We have an enemy within, and we have God within. No question Joseph is one of the best pictures we have of one who has been trained to discern right from wrong, of loving God and others well. Jump forward, or jump back if you're in Hebrews 14, but forward in our text to Genesis 45. And we see what the Lord's discipline has brought to Joseph. The scene here is the brothers have come down, <clears throat> because of the famine 
And Joseph sees them. And through circumstances, he eventually reveals himself to the brothers. Um, So then chapter 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And if you're the brother, what are you thinking? We're dead. Second most powerful man in the world here, we're dead. But listen to Joseph. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. There it is. Right? God is good and sovereign, even using sin to accomplish his purposes. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. In the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. Verse 7. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to save your life by a great deliverance. In verse 8. So then... It was not you who sent me, but God. Do you see it? God used sin to accomplish his purposes. If you can get your mind around that, we need to talk, because I can't. Right? He's God, and I am not, and that's good enough. I don't want to make it simple. It's not. But he is God. Great mystery. The brothers did evil. But God used it as a tool. With Joseph, right, and us reading the story, the blessing of seeing the end of the story in Genesis. Most of us won't. You're in, you don't know when you're going to see. I see looking back on my trials. I had the toughest two years of my life a couple years back. In the middle of that, I didn't know where it was going. It was hard. It's bewildering. Challenged my faith to the core. But I saw the end. But some of us won't see the end. But we have the promises of Scripture. The challenge here in our text, in the Hebrews, it was to, to endure. But let's not forget the powerful promises of God. We know that God is at work. Even in sinful, weak people, even in the details, He is at work in you, in me. Even in sinful, weak people, He is using in you and me. Use the discernment He is growing in you to know the voice of the Scriptures, the voice of the Holy Spirit, the voice of Christ, and the voice of the enemy. Reject those powerful feelings that says that he is not sovereign, that he is not good, because he is. And we have Jesus to prove it. And we have stories of Genesis to prove it. Let's pray. Father, we are weak. We are weak in faith, often. We are weak in practice. Lord, would you... Grow us in our faith. Grow us in our understanding of your goodness and your sovereignty and your involvement in the details of life.
We trust this resource was a blessing to you. You might also be interested in our other podcast, Grounding Our Faith, which is an interview-style conversation with staff, church leaders, and members about issues of theology and everyday faith. Grace Church Resources and Grounding Our Faith are both ministries of Grace Community Evangelical Free Church in Spofford, New Hampshire.